Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have the long-awaited return of Richard Beck. Welcome to the show, Richard. Happy to be back. It's been too long. It has been too long. It has been... And people haven't heard from you. And let me tell you, I've got a way that people could hear from you more often, Richard. You want to know what it is? How's that? Podbean. It's an all-in-one podcast publishing and hosting platform. It offers the easiest way to get started in podcasting as well as enhanced features and monetization to take your podcast to the next level. Now, Richard, let me tell you why you need to know about this. Because you're a Bible teacher at the Highland Church of Christ. That's correct. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you thought, you know what, I would like... Maybe not you would like to. I know you wouldn't like to do this, but people in your class would like you to record your teaching so that when they're not there, they can still hear it. Now, Podbean gives you an option for that. You can use their app, record it on your phone, and post directly from your phone onto Podbean so they can listen to your Bible class teaching as soon as it's done. Isn't that amazing? Like, so you could like just get your phone and record the class. Yeah. And then click it and click it and it'll just go online. Yeah. Yeah, for more information, go to podbean.com. There's a discount for my listeners, podbean.com backslash newsworthy. They'll hook you up, give you a discount. There you go, Richard. Yeah, I might need to You're welcome. That. You know, my students probably want me to do that with my lectures so they don't have to come to class. You know, they could just, they could lay oh, in bed wow. and wait for the Podbean. Yeah. They could. You can even, in the university setting, what, do, can you ever see education going in that direction where you're just posting lessons online they listen and they engage virtually i think a lot of people think that that's where it is going um a lot more non-traditional delivery formats but if yeah i mean i don't see why you couldn't be completely skyping into lectures and from around the world and listening what do you what would be the the detriment to just having a virtual academic experience well i mean i think some People, some people think the detriments would be just that a personal interaction and interactivity. But I do think some of those have technological fixes to them. Um, but a lot of people that really advocate for online virtual learning would, would argue that, you know, those really aren't – those aren't really detriments. They – that if you – if done well, they can be just as good as, you know, live format. So I don't know. So I, I've, I've got a theory about live preaching being – more important than virtual preaching, like the the satellite campus stuff, yeah. where people just watch on the screen. But it seems like everyone watches, even at, at the church I'm a part of. Like when you and I were there, when you and I preached together, I think probably the majority of people watched us on the screen right above our head than actually looking at you and me in person. And yeah, I so find myself already doing looking, that. Mm-hmm. I find myself yeah. doing it at Highland. Maybe is that weird? Jonathan, Jonathan Storm's hard on the eyes. I got to look away. Or maybe you need like a full-size preacher and the only way to get that is on the screen because it kind of en- See, I enlarges should have done that. I shouldn't have done that to my preacher. See, we shouldn't have gone into the Jonathan Storm at Country. Jonathan's good. Hey, He's a good-looking a sh- man. I want to be on record. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good that he can look. And he's a man. I agree with that. Um, no, it's true that yeah. even I notice when Jonathan's preaching, I notice that I often look at the screen. I don't know why I do that. Because the screen always wins. Because like the, the bright, shiny, like you, like a fish when like a, a shiny hook falls in the water. You go to it. You can't resist it. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if churches should stop doing that then. They should just turn off the screens if there's a live person. 
there. I'm asking if it's a huge auditorium, but like why 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 have the screens live? I mean, you can have it for your you can have like your sermon title up there, some artwork, but but not a lot yeah. feed of the preacher. Yeah, there's something about like I, I think if it's a small room, of course. But when you get like what size is too big? And at some point, like I, it's almost like there's a certain amount of rows back until people start looking up at at our church. At Highland, I wonder if it's the same thing because that's a big room. And anyway, yeah. right, I want to ask you about something else. All right, Did, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but Aaron Hernandez, the uh, former NFL tight end for the Patriots, convicted, went to jail for murder a couple years back. Just got um, another murder sentence. He was acquitted of, but obviously still has a life in prison. Commits suicide today. Yeah, you I didn't saw see that. the story. Did oh, you did. Mm-hmm. Okay, what you're not a you're not a huge football fan, right? I am. I'm, I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I grew up in Western PA. I know, but like you don't like. I don't. How often do you watch the Steelers? Every every Sunday. week. Yeah. I mean, oh, okay. I yeah. I mean, yeah. If they're on, I'm going to watch some of the game. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good enough. Then. Um, when you hear the story about an inmate committing suicide, with your connection to the uh, prison system. And your work at uh, at French um, Roberts, right? That's the name mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. What like what what goes through your head when you hear a story about uh, a guy like that committing suicide? Yeah, I just couldn't. I I, I don't know if I have anything in, insightful that goes through my head. I, I just think, what was it about him getting a you know acquitted and then committing suicide? Like, I don't understand. That seemed like good news, right? Yeah, but he's going to be in jail for the rest of his life anyway. Yeah. And some people go, well, you know what? You're going to have this, uh, a terrible life in prison, so you know, just go ahead and kill yourself. That's some of the response. I would assume that like your work, uh, you have a lot of friends in the prison system that you've built through the, uh, the Bible study that you're a part of, that like, y- you would have a higher value of human life that you would go, obviously, that's not the right option or the best option, the only option. Well, you know, I've heard an argument that suggests that life without parole is is a form of cruel and unusual punishment, and we should banish it from the country. Um, because hope seems to be like almost a human need. Like we need the ability or the capacity to hope. Hmm. And if you want to think about it theologically, right, humans are eschatological creatures. We like to project ourselves into the future. And when you take hope away from us, it's very difficult for us to go on and move on. Um, now, that doesn't mean if there's a really bad person out there who's committed multiple murders that they, they, their parole should be denied you know, for their lifespan. But, that does, but, but to rob them of the, the chance, maybe yeah. way, way, decades, decades, maybe when they're 80 years old. Because there's a lot of old men in my study. You know, like senior citizens. Guys have been in jail for decades and decades and decades. And, and and, and so, I, so I, I guess that's what it makes me think of is that, is that debate about whether or not living without hope, no hope ever of getting out of prison, whether or not that's a form of torture or not. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, that, that opens up a whole other bag of worms. I think it's a can of worms, actually. Um, but a can of worms, because then you go, what about the, the family who lost you know, their kid who was killed by Aaron Hernandez? And like, how do you balance that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's a, anyway, sad story all around. Uh, a lot of people lost uh, family members through that. So um, yeah. let's talk about something else. 
did you hear that the Pope read your blog post and then changed what he did because of it, that you are shaping the Pope's actions? Did you know that? I did. You know, Sarah Miles, the author Sarah Miles, um, who we've we've exchanged emails, but she's a big writer. Take This Bread mm-hmm. is one of the best books I've ever read. Um, so if you've never read it, Sarah Miles. But Sarah Miles showed up on my blog and, and let me know about this, that the Pope Francis has taken one from the Beck playbook. Do you, okay, I think James Martin, who's now like the Pope's... Um, I don't know, like he's like his Twitter guy, like he, the, some fancy title for like internet communication or something. Uh, he's, got, he's got a new book that comes out next month. And I, if I get him back on, I'm going to ask him, hey, did the Pope really see Richard Beck's blog? Because it, it can't be a coincidence. Like that blog went all over the place. That's true. So, yeah. And your listeners have no idea what we're talking about right now. No, they know the blog. They will link it in the show notes. But yeah, you want to... Pope, no, but they don't it. know what the Pope did to imitate the laundromat, like the laundry, like laundry he opened. Mat. Yeah. So yeah, Pope. So Pope Francis opened up a laundromat in Rome for the homeless, and like two years ago, I had I had wrote a blog post on my blog that was titled "Instead of a coffee shop, how about a laundromat?" Where I said, you know, a lot of churches want to create these third spaces, places where. They can be neighborly and they can meet, meet, meet people on kind of an even playing field so they don't have to go all the way into a church building. And it seemed like everybody was starting up coffee shops. And I said, yeah. you know, that's a kind of a middle class white suburban thing to do. I said, in my, in my hometown, the places where all the different people cross and meet and mix and mingle is, is our laundromats. And the laundromats in our town were completely trashed and run down and – so I kind of wrote that blog post, maybe prompting my church to kind of take a look at starting on a neighborhood laundromat. And uh, some friends of mine, Mike and Kathy, started a laundromat, just opened like a month ago, Wash This Way, and it's doing great. Yeah. And all different sectors of Abilene are showing up at that laundromat from kind of low income to upper class, all different kinds of white, Hispanic, African-American. It's like this great cross-section of Abilene society. Um where they're just sitting there, you know, for an hour or two, hmm. uh, doing their laundry together, and, and, and friendships and relationships and conversation can start in that place in a way that I think might be more effective than a coffee shop, where people kind of plugged into their, you know, their iPhones and yeah. you know, in their computers. Um, anyway, so yeah, Pope Francis started a laundromat. Yeah, I saw your friends started one. Uh, I saw you you blogged about that. Your friends started yeah. one in that, the Wash This Way. Yeah. Yeah, I also saw it. A few months ago, there was a story about like the uh, pastor who did Kanye West's wedding. Um, he's down like Miami, and it was like he's like the hey, I'm really cool. He doesn't say this, but that's how he was kind of marked. It was like a GQ article or something, and like all the pretty people in Miami come to like his church, and then they had a thing where they went to laundromats and gave out quarters to people who were doing their laundry. And I thought. You got the Pope, you got the cool, pretty mega church pastors. Everyone loves it. So maybe that should be your next book. Uh, doing something on laundry. I think that would be great. Oh, that's, you know, that's a, yeah, that's a good idea. You're Mike welcome. Mike and Kathy, they're doing, they do a card system. So they don't have coins, you know, so you load up a card. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Jan and I bought up a bunch of those cards and we hand them out all over the place. Like at Freedom, where, where we, mm-hmm. we're working with a lot of homeless and poor people. Like I hand those out at Freedom all the time so, pe- so our homeless friends and poor friends could go wash their clothes. 
Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah. Okay. We okay. We have a mailbag. We have a handful of mailbag questions. We're going to get to, but I got a couple more. Like we we've been saving up things to talk about for too many months. So we're gonna we're gonna have to just jump around today. Are you cool okay. with that? Yeah. Did you read um, Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project? It talked about the authors who did Think That, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, or whatever that title is. Um, Kahneman, Kahneman and Amos Traversky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you read that? Did you hear like, Lewis's book talking about them? I haven't read the book, but I, I mean, obviously, I know their work really well because it's just really influential in psychology. Yeah. Well, it's basically him taking it and making it pop level, and it's yeah, it's fascinating. That's really good. Um, next one. Brueggemann on the podcast. Okay. Yeah, I Doing know. One of my Jonathan hates... People. What? Wait. Who's, who's more favorite, though? Like you or him? Yeah. Like, I was just... I mean, I, no. I felt like you just jumped right... Like, my favorite person was on the podcast, and I feel like yeah. I'm always on the podcast. Do I like Walter Brueggemann more than Luke Norsworthy? Is that what you're I, I don't... I didn't feel like we need to go exactly down that road, but since you yeah. already posed yeah. the question... True. Yeah, I like him more than you. Oh, Richard. <laughs> no. That's hurtful. Isn't he brilliant, though? He's just a... Uh, he's, he's so smart, but every time I've been around him, he's also so accessible and humble. Yeah. He, he was, like, the great ideal guest who would actually, like, engage, had brilliant stuff to say, but actually would have a conversation and wouldn't just go to talking points. Uh, big yeah. fan of that guy. And I loved he was interacting with Hate's work. That just made me very happy. Did you- yeah, I, I think yeah, I think hates work. You know, basically his work on the moral moral grammars, summarizing his book, The Righteous Mind. It's just a very helpful way of thinking about the culture wars, particularly the way we we talk past each other because we use different criteria for yeah. defining right or wrong. And I find it really helpful to kind of um, help conservatives and liberals kind of see how they're kind of talking past each other. Um, mm-hmm. But tracing that in his book with his was it his son-in-law? No, it was son? his his son, yeah. his son, the sociologist. Yeah, tracing it all back to the Bible was you know really yeah. really fast. So hate's work it's it's like helping people like you're saying across the aisle to be able to communicate. Uh, obviously, the Enneagram we keep coming back to a lot on the podcast. We've got Ian and Suzanne coming to our church to do an Enneagram conference in uh, three three weeks, three or four weeks. And again, that's another like tool to help people communicate across, you know, different personality types. Uh, I don't know about you, but it sure seems like a big part of what I end up doing with my life is helping people communicate uh, because it just doesn't naturally come to us. That you have to have things in place to understand that we are all different when we say things. It's never exactly what the other person thinks it means, and having to somehow like jump over those chasms of communication. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think particularly when you talk about morality, which is what hate's work is about, right? Judging something is right or wrong. Those tend to be really emotional issues. And we tend to experience these moral judgments as if they're facts. They're like moral mm-hmm. facts. It's just obviously wrong or this is obviously right. And so therefore, whenever you encounter anybody that feels something is not, not right or wrong, feels different from you, it feels like they're denying gravity, yeah. You know, so when a liberal looks at a conservative and they disagree, it feels like that person is just ignoring something as obvious as gravity. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for a conservative looking at a liberal. They're just denying something that's so obvious. 
And so it just creates a dehumanizing dynamic that your conversation partner is just, um, you know, kind of just not an honest person they're just, or, 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 or they're not a smart person because they just can't see the obvious. Yeah. That's just really damaging. So when you can give them something like hates moral grammars, you can kind of say, do you see how, you know, if you play your cards, you know, if you're playing the, you know, the, the uh, respect for authority card, that's different from the fairness card. And that can get you to a different kind of judgment mm-hmm. on like, you know, um, uh, gay marriage. Like it can lead you to different, if you respect yep. tradition, that leads you to one outcome. But if you're focusing on fairness and justice, that's going to lead you to a different outcome. That, then I think at least it allows you to look at your conversation partner as somebody who at least has an argument. Like they're, they're, yeah. they're at least trying to make sense, even if you disagree strongly. Yeah, that's like uh, uh, the book uh, Being Wrong, uh, whoever wrote that book, Schultz maybe, where her, her statement was, whenever someone's wrong, we jump to a couple different options. One is they're evil, they're dumb, or whatever the third one was. But like we naturally insert negative narratives whenever we disagree with people. And... Like, I think hate's worth kind of like, let's undo some of that assumption about the other person. Yeah. All right. Let's do some mailbag questions. You ready to do this? Yeah, this is my first mailbag. Do you think we should call it the Beck bag? It's kind of like mailbag, but just for Richard Beck. Um, I don't know. That just doesn't sound good. Beck bag? I don't know. No? You don't (laughs) want to go that? I feel like my appreciation for word puns is not equal than you. I wish you would um, appreciate that more. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's called the. You okay? The Beck Bag. It is. That's going to be the name of the podcast. This episode, the Beck Bag, brought to you by Podbean dot com and all. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Here's the. Was that a good pitch? Wasn't it? I mean, that sounded... I thought it was good. I, no, I was actually. I was not. I was not helping you out. I was intrigued by that. The ability to could put a a Sunday yeah. school class online so easily. Like I like. I think that's a great idea. I know. That's you know what? I'm just trying to help out our friends at Podbean. Okay, that's enough of Podbean. Um, no. all right. Longtime listener, first time caller. Ty in Austin. I know this guy. Last year, at the age of 36, I started reading some books about midlife at the encouragement of a mentor, not because of a crisis per se, but because I started recognizing the stories I tell myself about myself didn't always match. Reality. All right, this is a long one. We're going to have to kind of abbreviate it a little bit. So we're jumping around author Ty. Okay, uh, the, the authors deal a lot with the concept of neurosis. How do you say that? Neurosis? Neuroses. Neuro- neuroses. Okay, that sounds better. The neuroses. That's a plural of neurosis versus neuroses. Yeah. Okay, neuros. Yeah, those. How would you define that, by the way? Give, it, give us the 15-second definition. Neuroses? Yeah, like, how, like what does that even mean? Well, typically it's associated with kind of anxiety, like inner anxiety and inner self-evaluations. I don't have a great definition of it, but it's like it's like feeling shame, guilt, perfectionism, self-esteem, you know, mm-hmm. just just inner the inner drama of wanting to be a good person and um uh how we measure up to other people. Yeah. Yeah. Your inner we could also just say like your inner junk, that the, the stuff we all got to deal with. I'm good with that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What he said was, I, what I gleaned, uh, what I gleaned colored my working definition for neurosis, a cyclical behavior that manifests when a psychological wound is trigger, triggered, which causes one to act in a way that is harmful emotionally, mentally, or physically to self or others. 
Coupled with that, I've been listening to some random novice kid, see he's, I know, I know what he's doing here. Novice kid face preacher prattle on, I don't know what the word prattle means, prattle on about various things for a little while here in Austin, Texas. On one such occasion, I actually listened because he was talking about sin. This is a subject which I wanted to, this is a long question. Um, we're jumping to the very end. Sorry, Ty. Uh, obviously, not all sins are neuroses, and not all neuroses are sins, but could this be the type of thing Paul was talking about? Is it too broad a brush to paint with for what sin is? Um, his def- so what's the relationship between sin and neuroses? Yeah, like how do they interact? If, if you define it as like shame, perfectionism, guilt, w- would you classify those things as sins? Or is it just yeah. different category? Um, I mean, I I often adopt a kind of a Jewish approach towards sin in the sense that what 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 should get moralized is behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now Christians are a little different because Christians moralize mental events too. Like you can sin in your heart. Yeah. Um, and so thought, thoughts themselves can be sinful. Um, Jews gave the, the mind a lot more leeway. You could think pretty bad, horrible thoughts, but as long as you act appropriately, that's a, that's a moral win hmm. um, in, that, in that sense. So, and I, I tend to lean on that. I, I tend to think that, that – but, but yeah, I think some – so I think, yeah, I think that Jesus' dark, hot, you know, lustful thoughts or, or violent thoughts, dehumanizing thoughts are probably sins, but that's not necessarily neurosis. Mm-hmm. You know, so neurosis is low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, perfectionism, obsessions, compulsions, and things like that. And I definitely think neurosis can lead to sin, right? So uh, if you have, if you feel insecure about yourself or you feel prideful about yourself, that it can that can generate competitive behaviors domineering behaviors to compensate for that lack of self-esteem mm-hmm. it could cause self-absorption neurosis is can kind of be very self-focused and so if you think about that augustinian and curvitus nc curved in yep. on yourself neurosis makes you really self-focused and so that can be you know a form of sin you're not other focused um yeah on, on, so yeah i definitely think there's a lot of overlap um, did, did you read Unapologetic by Francis Spuford came out yeah, a couple I years did. ago. So his uh, human potential to <clears throat> mess things up, um, like, was this great metaphor for this idea that there's this thing inside all of us that pulls us away from what we should and could and ideally would be doing. And I've I've been working with this idea of sin as like this resistance force. So like Pharaoh is sin to Yahweh in the Exodus. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like this idea of sin is that it's that thing that pulls us away from God's intention or ideal for us. And if, if you have these harmful emotional uh, feelings, thinking, uh, thought processes that go through, it seems like that's a form of sin that it's pulling you away because God's ideal is not you wrestling with perfectionism or shame or crippling guilt, right? Right. So, I, yeah, I... Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, connection there. Well, and I talk about, I mean, I talk about neurotic anxiety a lot in, in my book, The Slavery of Death, in that how our death anxiety tends to manifest is in neurosis. So, you know, Hebrews 2, so my book is a meditation on Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, where it talks about Jesus came to set us free from the, po- you know, from the power of the devil, and the power of the de- devil is the fear of death. Mm-hmm. So that fear is like a neurotic fear. 
Um, so in the West, our fear of death manifests more neurotically, like so a quest for a significant or a meaningful life. And so we create these self-esteem projects and we're constantly neurotically pursuing um, like so you and I, right? We were talking about before the podcast started, like our our, our social media hits, you know, is who's reading my blog and, and I get I'm that's I'm checking my blog statistics because of a neurotic need to feel important and uh, and so, yeah, all of that is not healthy. It's not it's not leading me deeper into God, but it's it's getting me trapped inside my own, you know, the, like you said, your own junk in your head, your own self-esteem project. And I, and I seriously, I think that's one of the big battlegrounds of Christian maturity is the the the, the battle to give up on your own self-esteem project. Yeah. Uh, and, and to constantly be striving for it. It's, a, it's kind of a works – it's a, like a neurotic version of workspace righteousness to somehow hmm. build an ego, defend your ego, validate your ego. Um, and typically that is always done through some form of violence towards other people. Like I'm better than other people or it's a violence to yourself. Other people are better than me. Yeah. But it's the whole game of evaluating yourself. I think that's the heart of neurosis is that am I good? Am I bad? Am I winning? Am I losing? Who's paying attention to me? Who's not paying attention to me? Uh, what am I missing out on? What do I need to do? You know, that, you know, that's, that's, yeah, that's a poison. Yeah. That's, that can get in. That's death. Yeah. I had someone, uh, hit me up on Twitter saying, Hey, I just started, uh, today's my first day being a pastor. What's my, what advice would you give me? And I said, you know, just straight Henry, Henry Nowen on him. I thought the most important thing is to not listen to what people say good or bad about you but always be tuned into what God says about you. And I think, man, it doesn't matter what field you're in. It's, there's always, there's always that junk that you got to deal with. Okay. And I, and I think, I think the way to get out of it is kenosis, right? It's, it's self-emptying. It's not, it's not thinking humility isn't, I think humility is the great antidote to neurosis, but humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just being self-forgetful. It's just not thinking about yourself. It's it's a, the ability to be focused on other things and other people. Mm. So I think self-forgetfulness and gratitude are, are key. Humility and gratitude are your key are your key weapons uh, in the battle against neurosis. I think that's good. I'm going to rip that off and preach it at some point. So thank you for that. All right, we're on to the next question, and this is uh, we're going to try to play an audio clip right now. You ready for this? Yeah. Okay, let's, let me know if you can, I hope you can hear this. Hey Luke, my name is Daniel. I'm a youth minister in Indiana, and I have a question for you. I've heard your interviews with Richard Rohr and have loved them, but he says something that piqued my interest a couple of times. He says something to the effect of, in our journey of faith, it's better to start conservative and then journey toward a more progressive theology and eschatology. If I'm understanding correctly, I think that's what he said. Um, my question is, how does that apply in the context of youth ministry? All right. That's a good question. There's more to that one. But again, these are long questions. We've got to keep them short, guys. That is a great question, though, Daniel. Uh, growing up, cons- did you ever hear Roar say that before, Beck? Yeah, I think I heard him on say it on the podcast yeah. before with you. Yeah, I remember him saying that. Um, I remember sitting across from one time when he said that. Um, I, but I've heard him multiple times say that it's better to grow up conservative. Um, but then, 
as you grow, you can open your, your bounds a little bit. It's almost like you start with proverbial wisdom, like do good and good things will happen to you. And then at some point you experience Job and then you have to figure out life after that. Um, obviously you're not a youth minister, but you've got like teenagers, right? Is your oldest yeah. son, like, is he still a teenager? Or is he like in his twenties yet? Brendan? Yeah. I mean, he's still a teenager, but he's uh he's the freshman at ACU. Yeah. So he just started college and my son Aiden is a sophomore in high school. So yeah, two boys, teenage boys. Okay. So when they were in junior high and you were trying to explain God and all that stuff to them, wh- like, where'd you go? Cause obviously your upbringing was probably more conservative, more traditional than where you are right now. Right? Right, right. Did you try to replicate your upbringing or did you try to start from where you are right now? Um, you know, I think a little bit of both. I mean, even though even though my parents were and we talked about this on another podcast, theologically my parents grew up in a conservative, you know, sect of the churches of Christ. Um, my my parents weren't very like legalistic or dogmatic people. They were, they were, they were great, you know? And so I think we talked about how the conservative theology of my, of our church was filtered through the affection of our parents. And that somehow buffered us from the more toxic, you know, aspects yeah. of, of that, that theology. So, um, so in that sense, no, I obviously didn't raise my boys with a conservative theology, but I do think I've tried to replicate my parents focus on relationship, um, and and the other thing I appreciate about my parents is they didn't they didn't try to um, they gave us room to kind of explore our, our own faith a little bit. So I didn't feel like my parents kind of even though we went to a church of Christ that 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 they gave us they didn't force religion down our throat. If I just put it that way, yeah. it felt all very very welcoming. And so I've tried to I've tried to do that with my boys as well. I mean, some people might fault me. Here's the thing: is I think every parent feels like. Am I making the right choices? If I had a do-over, would I do over? Um, so my boys obviously were exposed to very faithful parents in the sense that we were always, you know, we always go to church and we're very active at church. And I think the best thing that we did for our boys is that we are like the family that's the last people to leave church. Like, does that make sense? I've, no, like, I've literally seen you, you and I walk out of Highland the the very same time. And that is like almost every week we like stand in the lobby and talk. And when our boys were little, they would run around the church and now they just sit there and go, mom, you know, they look at us, but we, we linger. And I think that's a spiritual formation practice because I think if you, you train your kids, the minute church is over, we're gone and you don't sit there in the lobby and visit and catch up and, you know, make contact with all your people I'm a huge advocate for the spiritual discipline of lingering in the lobby after church until because I really think that's where community is. I think the minute if you if you just bolt like, you know, great sermon, great worship, you appreciate it. But I, I find that the real community of church happens before and after church out in the lobby. And if you were just not there and that, then. I think they're missing out a huge part of what I find really important about church, which is the community aspect of it. And, and you're ingraining in your boys that these people matter, being connected to this community matters. And you, you're doing the whole like caught, not taught stuff. Like it's caught by just visualizing your parents every Sunday being there and connecting to people. So of course they see that matters because they're practicing yeah. that. 
some might say, well, isn't there like some core teaching like that you would have to do, like, you know, teach your kids that God is love or. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. But, and I've done that. Yeah, I've done that. But it, as, a, as a college professor, I, I tend to jump on soapboxes with my boys. And so they have been exposed to and somewhat traumatized by intense theological discourses in odd locations. But that's, like, as you go, it's a natural outpouring of your life. Yeah, yeah. What I saw on your blog the other day, um, something is the crucible of your morality. What did you... Yeah, yeah, so I was being a, I was being a goofball, so being a dad, I guess. I don't know why I could consider being irritating to be normal, <laughs> normal dad behavior, but I was singing loud, doing a dumb dance. I don't know what I was doing. And Aiden's like, Dad, you're being irritating. And then I said to Aiden, I said, Aiden, the, the, the crucible of your irritation is the arena of your moral perfection. And that's what passes as fatherly advice in my house. And so then I went on this launch of how domestic life is the, is the place where we pursue holiness, you know. Mm-hmm. So I told, basically I told him, I said, Aiden, if you want to be a good person, you got to get along with your dad. Like we got, we got to live together, son. <laughs> we got to get and, along, and, and uh, I got to live with him. His, Aiden can be pretty prickly. Yeah, I, I, and, I'd and said so, yeah, not to him. I don't know why I said yes that he's prickly. Oh yeah, yeah, but but I mean, Aiden, Aiden can be prickly, and and I can be irritating, and and we're gonna have to figure out. This is the way I describe parenting with my students. I go, all of us are like unique molecular compounds. Like we have a shape, a molecular shape. And each and your parent is a molecular shape, and the kid is a molecular shape. And so the contact points, the chemistry of the contact points between the child and the parent, those friction points, that's where you got to manage your parenting because your contact points are different from your wife's contact points. That's point. true. Like, but your what 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 one kid does to you might just push your buttons, and it doesn't bother your spouse, or vice versa. Yeah. And 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 in a similar way, there's easy spots. Like there's a part of your child's personality that fits really well with your personality. You're really compatible there. And so I think managing the friction points in the in the in the very particular and unreplicable contact points between a particular parent and a particular child is is one of the great secrets of parenting because that's unique. You know what pushes your buttons, Luke? They're from my buttons. Yeah. Which means my parenting challenges are different from yours, and and we have different kids, and that's good. That's good. You're, I mean, that's one hundred percent right. That's definitely my experience. All right, so for Daniel, the youth minister from Indiana, conservative youth ministry, I think Richard would say, teach them to linger, be connected. Is that where you'd start? Yeah, teach them, teach them to linger. All right, there you go. All right, we've well, and I. It, like, well, as far as what I would teach my kids? No. Oh my gosh, man, well, you're awful. not a youth minister, so I'm just trying to put in your, your world as a parent of teenagers. You know, at the end of the day, I think what you want to teach your kids, I've said this before. I said, I think there's only really one theological question that we, we all ever discuss, ever, over and over and over again, which is, what is God's like? Yeah. That's, that's the one question that, and so at the end of the day, and there's two answers to that. One is, you know, you, we're down here trying our best, figuring it out. You know, trying to make the best calls we have, and you either think that you're going to get to heaven and God's going to like stick it to you. That's one way to think about it. Like if you screw it up down here, he's he's just waiting to whack you with it. Yep. Or you're going to get to heaven and God's going to say, you know what? Like I, you know, you didn't get a hundred percent correct. You made some mistakes, and 
but like like you, you did you know like I'm on your side like is God fundamentally for you yeah. or is he out to get and and that's what I try to communicate to my that's what I've tried to communicate to my boys over and over and over again is that God is for you hmm. um and 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 so do the do do the best you can be the best person you can be be kind be gracious God's got your back Hey, that's good parenting. It's good youth ministry. It's good, like good for everyone. Like that's a f- fundamental question. God for you. Yeah, that's it. All right, let's yeah. go to the next one. Um, I think when the podcast has been deconstruction slash reconstruct. This is Josh from Colorado. Uh, deconstruction slash reconstruction of faith. I understand and agree with the idea that someone who goes through this reconstruction of faith will come out on the other side with a deeper, more mature faith. However, on your podcast, Mike Cope. Richard, you know Mike Cope. He used to be your preacher. Yeah. yeah. Good yeah. friend. Who, like, who's a better preacher, him or Jonathan? <laughs> On your podcast with Mike Cope recently, it seemed that Mike was saying that unless someone has gone through this deconstruction slash reconstruction, that their faith will only be an insecure and shallow faith. Uh, right at the 12-minute mark. That He's giving us a timestamp to prove that. Um, how can I... I don't think Mike would say you have to, like, unless you, well, that's Mike. He can answer that one. Mike wants to come back and do a wrap-up, a mail, or a, uh, a wrap-up podcast, so we'll let him answer that one in the wrap-up. But here's Josh's question. Yeah. How can I have construction slash deconstruction slash reconstruction process without paying for grad school or having a tragedy in my life to go through? Richard, you never went to grad school. You read a ton. Major... Tr- I went to. I mean, I didn't go to theological grad school. No, I didn't go to no. But I did go to grad school. I have a doctorate. I, well, thank you for reminding. I know you always <laughs> make me call you Doctor Beck to remind me that you have a, a terminal degree. Um, but he's referring to theological. Yeah, but I, yeah, I did not. I did not have the deconstructing, destabilizing experience of doing gr- theological, biblical work in grad school, which, from what I understand, is very deconstructing. From what I've heard from yeah. my pre. Yeah, it, it definitely is. But uh, so you would would it be fair to say you haven't had a major tragedy in your life to go through? Yes, no. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I've lived. I've lived a very blessed life. So I I have not had a lot of trauma. To yeah. Deal. Okay. So, yeah. And so, as someone who has experienced construction, deconstruction, slash reconstruction, without going to seminary or having major tragedy in your life, how can that happen? That's the question. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: is I, yeah, I get the state. I get how if we, we impose an artificial stage model on this kind of stuff, like here's a stage of you know construction, here's a stage of deconstruction, here's a stage, you know. But most, like, as a psychologist, most of us know that like the stages of grief are not really really stages. Yeah. It's all mixed up and complicated, yeah. and and so I think most psychologists would argue you that stage models are helpful maybe descriptively but they're they're actually not really accurate um i i think you go through i think it's just a maturing process like so for me it wasn't necessarily like i went through traumatic suffering or um i went to grad school i just think as i got older and my world expanded and you meet um so so for, for me the big thing that caused me to rethink suffering was like the holocaust like when i tried to make sense of the holocaust like in high school like when you start becoming aware of the the horror of the world that you start needing 
incorporate that into your theological worldview. And and so your elementary school understanding of God and suffering and evil, uh, you just realize it doesn't, it can't, it doesn't do it. It doesn't fit. And I don't know. So I don't know if I was deconstructing anything. I just realized that the world had gotten more complex and bigger and I needed to have a bigger, more complex theology. And then you meet your first Jewish friend or you meet your first, you know, gay friend and you meet, you know what I mean? Like you just start meeting people and having experiences. And as your world gets bigger, your theology has to get bigger and more complex. And I don't know if any of that has to be described as like traumatic period of a dark night of the soul. I don't think I ever had a lot of that. I just felt like, you know, here's a new thing that I got to make sense of and some – some books help and you start looking around for resources. So I don't think it has to be deconstruction, reconstruction. It could just be growing up and, and having a more adult-like faith yeah. um, about things. And it doesn't have to be a big crisis. I don't think it was a big crisis for me. Just a gradual development. Yeah. When you're describing like the Holocaust, um, okay, that's a type of suffering that in some ways that you became aware of and you had, I don't know, some sort of uh, – like you stepped into the suffering of those who are closely connected to the actual tragedy and you became aware of, instead of like, I'm distant, I'm removed. I wasn't there. Like the word compassion literally means in Greek, it's a compound word, suffer with. And to have compassion Mm -hmm. means like you, you take on a, a small minute version of the suffering that the actual participants experienced. And so it seems like there's some way, like you open up your world, you experience the suffering of the world in your own kind of way, like vicarious suffering. Like I didn't, I, like you, I haven't had any major trauma um, like many people who've been on the podcast, like like Cope, for example, I haven't had that. But I'd also yeah. say that when, you know, Josh Ross's sister passes away, you know, in her early 30s, you know, being in the ICU with them, you know, being friends with the family, like there's a sense that, that suffering that they experienced had an effect on me as well. So don't you think like that, that's part of opening your world up is that you experience a small facet of the suffering of others. Yeah, no. And, and, and I think a part of what has to be accommodated is it can be personal or vicarious suffering. So the death of a parent or um, loss, a, a loss of a friend is going through or in Mike's case, the loss of a daughter, right? Obviously all of those losses become experiences that need to get folded into your faith in some in some way so we're constantly meaning making creatures we're trying to make meaning out of the stuff of life and some of that can be historical some of it can be theological some of it can be personal um yeah so most definitely all but what i was trying to the point i was just trying to make was that if you haven't had that horrible loss Mm -hmm. uh, uh, i think i had already made some I think I had already made my my important theological shifts prior to any big loss that uh, that, that I bumped into in the world. Does yeah. that make sense? Like no. I had already, and I'm trying to make a point here is I don't think you need to suffer loss to have got your theology out front of suffering. You can do that in a very thoughtful way. I mean, watch just you know go watch Schindler's List and then try to make sense of it yeah. and. Um, and that will put you if you do that kind of work. So the great, great literature and art, and you know that 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 can prepare you 
to have a better theology. You know, so I, I that when you do when the when the shoe drops and trauma does hit, you're you've you know you're well down the road of coming up with a good theology yeah. to, to meet that demand. Yeah, and I think one of the signs of healthy spirituality is that folding in process of taking what you experience, what you see, what you learn about, and letting that impact and shape and affect how you understand how God works in the world and who God is. Otherwise, it's just like this disconnected part of your your life. It's almost like the equivalent of the person, like, I'm going to go to church for now and I'm going to rush out and I'm not going to let those relationships be folded into my actual life. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I think the mm-hmm. mixing that all in is that's... That's it. Um, all right, I've got an elders meeting in just a few minutes. Um, do you know anything? Okay, uh, uh, David Nordling asked if you know the work of Charles Einstein. I don't, I Charles don't, Einstein? Yeah. Like, is that, that, is that Albert's yeah, you know, it's, older it's his, brother? Like, it's his illegitimate no. child that uh, recently, <laughs> it's, he changed his last name back. He wanted to get a book deal. It's a lot of ways it's like Creed. Um, in Rocky, like he didn't want to acknowledge that he was Apollo's right. son. Uh, same thing with Charles. Um, I don't know. I do not know the work. Okay, good. Well, none of what I just said about him is true either. Um, all right. I'm looking it up right now on my phone. No, we're what gonna, is it? We're like, gonna, what, what's the question? Well, that, do you know his work? Curious what you think of his work. I guess you don't think much of it since you don't know it. Um, I, I might think it's great. But you might not either. Richard, on yes, uh, yesterday, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, did you bring your pink phone to church with you on Easter Sunday? I did bring my pink phone. That's okay. my that's my signature mark is my pink phone. I know, I know, I know. So when I was at church with my black phone, I <laughs> I the the phrase the slavery of death slipped into my sermon. While I was preaching it wasn't in my notes to say that, it just happened, and I thought to myself, I wonder what Richard Beck would say if he was preaching on Easter Sunday. You're you're lost in Charles Einstein's work right now. You're not even listening to me. Yeah. No, I'm listening to you. What would I say on Easter Sunday? Yeah, like if you're having a we're not we're done with Charles Einstein. We're, you don't have to Google him anymore. Yeah. Um. First of all, I would say Jonathan Stormont did a good job on Sunday, so I do want to plug my preacher for that. He did a good job. That was nice of you to say that. Yeah, he did a good job. Um. You know, Easter's hard, isn't it? Because it's it's uh it's a very victorious. You know, theme, and you don't like the victorious. Obviously. You want it winter, not summer. Well, and and I think that's where Protestants struggle a little bit because they don't. If you don't do Lent, and you don't do Good Friday or Holy Saturday, and every because if every Sunday's Easter, you know, then you're just piling on. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you're just running up the score. Yeah, yeah. It's just, so so one sentence. I almost want to say if Protestants don't do Lent or Good Friday, they shouldn't do Easter. You know, I mean, so in one sense, yeah. that if you haven't grieved and, and walked walked through the suffering part and done the Good Friday work, then I think because I joke I joked with my with my Bible class before Easter that we had a Good Friday service, and then on Easter Sunday, Highland always buys these lilies, and the church can take the lilies home. Um, you know, after service is over. But I told my class, I said, if you, you're not allowed to take a lily unless you go to the Good Friday service. Cause, <laughs> because you you got to earn your lily. By, you know? By being really sad. You got to go to the, yeah, you got to earn your lily. And I think you got to earn your Easter. I think you got to do that requisite work. And so, right. mm-hmm. but what I, but if I was preaching, so let's assume that we did the Good Friday work. Um, 
and, and that we, we earned our right to the lily on Easter, what would I say? Um, I, I would I would pr- try to tell people that uh, that we're people of the resurrection and that Easter is a way of life and that we need to, um, in the words of William Stringfellow, look for tokens of resurrection wherever we are. The grass is cra- is breaking up through the concrete in all kinds of different nooks and crannies and in our own lives, right? So I think I'd spend time on Ezekiel's The Valley of Dry Bones, that dead things can come to life again. And Easter is about those those dead things coming back to life. Mm. And uh, so you have to live live life with Easter eyes and an Easter heart open up to it all. And, and, and that does mean checking our cynicism and our skepticism and our doubts. Like I know, I know Easter can be hard for many of us to believe in. Um, and, and that's why I think hope is a really – to kind of bring this podcast first, full circle, I think, I think we are eschatological creatures, humans yeah. are. We need, we need hope. And um, if Easter's anything, it's that. It's that we live with a hopeful horizon, and that's just a lifestyle, and it's a, it's a worldview, um, and it's a way of life. That's good. I think I, – I Maybe think I'd you, say like that. I think you need to uh... – just do that next next Easter Sunday. And tell Stormer to take a break. Yeah, I think that's, well, that's a good. Yeah, story. I was going to be a preacher at one point in my life. Hey, it's not too late. It's not too late. But you know what? It is too late for this conversation to go any longer. I've got an elders meeting. I've got to go to Richard. It's a pleasure. Friends, don't forget our all-in-one podcast publishing and hosting platform. What's it called, Richard? Podbean. Yes, exactly. You're even going to go check it out, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Don't don't be a stranger. Hey. Let's not wait this long again, okay? We don't need to do that. All right. Hey, we text all the time. I know, but it's just not the same. People, people Hey, you know what I you know what I got going on now? What's that? The bitmoji. Do you got a bitmoji? What is I just like the It's where you make a little, a little picture of yourself and you use it use it Yeah. I'm um, totally on that. Yeah, I know. I'm going to send you a bitmoji of me right now. Okay. Well, I'm going to go to an elders meeting. So send it to me in five minutes when I'm in the middle of the elders meeting, okay? I'm just going to say, get ready for some awesome. <laughs> Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>